whose entire town and houses and church had been burned down to the ground. And we know that in your sovereign wisdom there is a, there's indeed a, a purpose, a good purpose for this, this flock of saints. We don't know what it is, but you do. And so we pray for comfort, encouragement, and strength. Would you uphold the members there of Grace Baptist Church? Would you send help? Would you cause your spirit to strengthen their hearts? That their hope in Christ in the future would shine so brightly that it would be a testimony to the, the community around them. And Lord, we pray for all the residents of the, of, uh, the west coast of Maui. We pray for um, all the families of those who lost their lives. It all, almost about 100 people have um, reported dead now. So there's much mourning, much sadness, but um, all is not lost because we have the church there, a light there. And so we pray that you would use this church even in greater ways than you have done in the, before in the last 50 years. And, and the, you would gather the church there to be a beacon of truth, of hope, of love, and uh, we pray that you would move some of us here uh, to give to Grace Baptist Church and to, and to encourage them uh, all, the way, all the way from uh, Northern Virginia. And so we lift them up. We uh, pray for uh, Pastor Brown's ministry, give him wisdom, give him a renewed uh, passion for the gospel in this great tragedy. And Father, now we pray for your your word, the preaching of your word, would you open our eyes and uh, help us see the glory of Christ's power and Christ's love and Christ's grace. Uh, pray this for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. If you can open your Bibles to John chapter 9, John chapter 9, let me read the entire chapter for you. John chapter 9. The Apostle John writes these words. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, saying, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Jesus answered, Neither is this man nor his parents sinned, but this was so that the works of God might be manifested in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. When he said this, he spat on the ground, made clay of the saliva, and rubbed the clay on his eyes, and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated scent. So he went away and washed and came back seen. Therefore the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Is not this the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, This is he. Still others were saying, No, but he is like him. He kept saying, I'm the one. So they were saying to him, how then were your eyes open? He answered, the man who was called Jesus made clay and rubbed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. 
So when I went away and washed, I received sight. And they said to him, where is he? He said, I do not know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. Now it was the Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, he applied clay to my eyes, and I washed and I see. So then some of the Pharisees were saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a sinful man do such signs? And there was a division among them. Therefore they said to the blind man again, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? And he said, he is a prophet. Then the Jews did not believe it of him that he was blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and questioned them, saying, Is this your son who you say was born blind? Then how does he now see? So his parents answered and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, or who opened his eyes we do not know. Ask him. He is of age. He will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone confessed him to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Therefore, a second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God, we know that this man is a sinner. He then answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. So they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to listen again? Do you want to become his disciples too? And they reviled him and said, you are, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. The man answered and said to him, well, here is a marvelous thing that you do not know where he is from. And he, and he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does his will, he, he listens to him. Since the beginning of time, and has, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered and said to him, You were born entirely in sins, and you were teaching us. So they put him out. Jesus heard that they had put him out, and after finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered and said, Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And he said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. And Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, Are we blind too? Jesus said to him, if you were blind, you would have no sin, but now that you say we see, your sin remains. What would you do at your next doctor's appointment if your doctor suddenly told you you were going blind? Would any cost of surgery for your eyesight, to keep your eyesight, would, it, would any cost be too high? Would a million dollars be the limit? Would you tell the doctor, no, doctor, I'm not going to, you know, my savings borrowing from banks and people uh, as much as I can is not worth trying to keep my vision? Of course not. Because being able to see with your eyes is a, is a priceless gift. 
there is no amount of money that would be too much for me to spend to keep my vision. There's no surgery I would not attempt to to, to, to partake of to save my eyesight. There's no country that would be too far for me to go if I knew there was a chance that someone could cure my blindness. And I think this is true for all of us. Life would be so much more difficult. Life would be so much less enjoyable. Life would be absolutely different in a bad way if you were blind. And the same is true when you're, when you're spiritually blind. Life is more difficult when you're blind to the word of Christ, when you're blind to the law of God, you will make the wrong moral decision nine times out of ten. The morality contained in Scripture is designed for your good. So when you're always uh, falling into sexual immorality, when every educational and career choice is motivated by pride and personal comfort and personal advancement, when you spend every Friday night at the bars instead of at Bible study, you are slowly killing yourself inside and out. When you're blind to the Lord Jesus Christ, life is so much less enjoyable. And I've experienced everything in the world that you have before the Lord saved me. And let me say this, nothing the world can offer compares to the joy of prayer, Bible reading, going to church, singing songs to God with the congregation. Uh, I don't go to church because I have to. Okay, well, sort of. You guys pay me. But I I go, not trying to earn something, I go to church because nothing gives me greater joy or deeper satisfaction. In the 20 years I've been a Christian, I think I've missed church on Sunday maybe two or three times. I was in an airport flying somewhere because of that. You see, the spiritual blind can never understand that joy and that contentment. Life is so much more difficult. Life is so much less enjoyable. Life is absolutely different in a bad way when you're blind to the person of Christ. And so in John chapter 9, Jesus, as we will see, he gives new eyes to a blind man while also showing us how to find a cure for people who do not see Jesus, who will not see Jesus. And this morning's sermon is a sermon for the spiritually blind. If you are here this morning and you suspect just a little bit that you might be spiritually blind to the person of Jesus Christ, or if you, if you know someone who is spiritually blind, John in chapter 9 will make clear that Jesus is the only person who can cure you. There is hope in no other name. There's no other way to see God and see His glory and to receive all the goodness He has for you uh, than, than through Christ alone. From John chapter 9, I will give you three reasons why Jesus is the only one who can cure you of blindness. And let me give you these three reasons right now. Number one, He can cure you of your blindness because He is your Creator. Point number two, Jesus can cure you of your blindness because he is your Savior. And point number three, Jesus can cure you of your blindness. He's the only one who can do it because he is your king. Let's look at point number one. 
that Jesus is the only one who can cure you of your blindness because he is your creator in verses 1 through 12. You see, when you're spiritually blind, it's not like your vision is blurry and you just need a little correction. No, no, no. You don't need glasses. You need new eyes. New life and the spiritual vision that comes with this new life necessitates an intervention of divine, supreme power. It needs Genesis 1 creation energy. The same divine word that said, let there be light and there was light in the universe for the first time is the only power that can light, that can shine light in the darkness of your heart. In verses 1 through 12, Jesus heals a blind man. And, and this healing of the blind man serves as an analogy for the greater healing Jesus gives in salvation. Throughout the Gospels, the real life uh, historical instances of Jesus healing diseased is often used by him to serve as an object lesson for the consequences, consequences of sin and the salvation he alone can give. So in, in chapter 9 of John, Jesus' healing of this physical blindness is an irresistible analogy of Jesus' power to heal your spiritual blindness. The end of chapter 9 makes that clear. Jesus said in verse 39, For judgment I came into this world, so that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Jesus is not talking about physical blindness right now. He is talking about spiritual vision and spiritual blindness. The historical setting of chapter 9 is Jerusalem during the Feast of the Tabernacles. And the Feast of the Tabernacles was the last of three annual festivals held in Jerusalem, all three festivals commemorating the Exodus in some way. Every Israelite was required to attend. And so in verse 1, we are introduced to the man who, in light of the symbolism of chapter 9, represents Every single person born into this world not named Jesus Christ. Verse 1, John says, And as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. This describes everyone born in the world. When you and I were born, we were born sinners. We were born with a sin nature. David says in Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was born. Uh, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. The sin nature we come into the world possessing is not something passive. Our sin nature is not a weakness or a, or a fault or an, or an imperfections, all things we, we can avoid uh, responsibility for. Rather, our sin nature expressed in our hearts and in our actions is an active opposition to God. It is a positive transgression of, us, of, of His law. And this transgression renders us guilty before Him. We are born separated from God. We are, we are bo born opposed to God. We are born hating God. 
And in this inner posture of the heart, it manifests itself in this constant transgression of God's law in our thinking, in our words, and in our deeds. And it is because of our sin nature, we are spiritually blind to who God is and to who we are. And it is because of our spiritual blindness, we are spiritual beggars before heaven's host. The blind man in verse 1 is begging by the temple. Jesus has just exited the temple in verse 59 of chapter 8. But it says there, the Pharisees, they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And so he hid, he's leaving the temple, and as he's leaving, he, he along with his disciples, sees a man blind from birth. And this sight of this blind man, it, it prompts a discussion in verses 2 through 5. The disciples, touched by the man's predicament, they ask him in verse 2, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he would be born blind? And so they, they have this, this, this discussion about a, theology, a theodicy of the relationship between sin and suffering. In the first world, in the ancient first world century of Jerusalem, uh, many, uh, if not all, of the Jews believed that if you were uh, had some physical infirmity, like if you were blind or you were deaf or you had leprosy or if you were crippled, it was because of some sin that you had committed. And God was punishing you for that sin. That was kind of the theology that was popular in the first century. But this is the dilemma. If somebody was born blind, then how... Did he, what, what sin did he commit to, desert, to deserve this blindness? And so the disciples, not knowing how to figure this out, they asked the Lord, Lord, who sinned? Was it this man or his parents that he would be born blind? There was this theory that if you were born with a, 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 a handicap, it was because somehow you sinned in the womb of your mother. Or, another theory was it was because of your parents who had sinned. And, and so the disciples asked Jesus the answer to this question. Now we all know that sickness is an indirect result of the fall in Genesis 3, but Jesus in verse 3, he denies that sickness is always the direct result of your sin or your parents' sin. Jesus answered, neither this man nor his parents sin. Jesus' is, concern is not what caused the blindness, but rather what will happen to the blind man in the present that will glorify God. He said, um, this was so that the works of God might be manifested in him. We must work the works of him who sent me as long as... As it is day, night is coming when no one can work. Everything that Jesus does in the Gospels is the pinnacle of God's eternal plan of salvation. In the Gospels, we see Jesus 
establishing these foundational realities recorded in the New Testament before he dies and rises again from the dead, before he ascends into heaven, these, these stories in the Gospels are these foundational truths that will be used to save sinners from eternal judgment until the end of time. And so Jesus, his statement in verse 5, is one of these foundational realities. He says, while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. I am the light of the world. By the way, the overall purpose of the Gospel of John is stated in John chapter 20, verse 31. John says, these have been written, this book, this entire Gospel that I'm writing, these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing that you may have life in His name. In other words, what you, what you read in the Gospel of John is meant to convince you that Jesus is God. And one of the ways Jesus reveals his deity is through the words he uses to describe himself, particularly the short phrase, I am. I am. In the book of Exodus, when God first launched his salvation agenda to the world, he did so by giving his name to Israel. When Moses asked God what his name was, God said to Moses, I am who I am. God in Exodus 3.14 says to Moses, thus you, shall, uh, uh, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God's name is I am. And the, the name I am has the idea of separation. That God is unlike anybody, anybody you know. That you can't put God in your little human categories. The I am transcends all human thought, all human limitations. And the word Yahweh, translated often Lord, all capitals in the Old Testament, is just the noun form of the verb I am. So every time you read the Old Testament, every time you see capital L-O-R-D, that Hebrew word is Yahweh, and Yahweh means I am. I am. So John, in order to convince you that Jesus is God, he records Jesus referring to himself as I am or Yahweh throughout the gospel seven times along with a descriptive phrase to reveal various aspects of his divinity. In chapter 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. In chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the gate. He says, I am the good shepherd in chapter 10 again. In chapter 14, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Chapter 14, uh, uh, chapter 15, I am the true vine. And the seventh I am is found here in verse 5 when Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Jesus came to earth 
to display the light of deity. John 1.4 describes Jesus this way, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. In the same way, the Creator can give life to all men and women. In the same way, the Creator can give spiritual life to all unregenerate men and women. So can Jesus, because he's the I am too. He is the Creator too. And by giving spiritual life to sinners, sinners can now have new spiritual vision of invisible heavenly realities. And so Jesus says he is the light of the world in verse 5, and Jesus proves he is the light of the world in verses 6 and 7. Verse 6, when he had said this, he spat on the ground, made clay of the saliva, and rubbed the clay on his eyes, and said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went away and washed, and came back seeing. This is no ordinary miracle. In the entire Gospel of John, this is one of seven signs that prove that Jesus is God, that prove that Jesus is the Creator. Jesus possesses within himself the same power and authority that God, the Creator, displayed in Genesis 1 and 2. And so in chapters 1 through 12, John confirms Jesus' deity by recounting seven miraculous signs. And they are, first, chapter 2, Jesus turns water into wine. Number two, he heals an official son in chapter four. In chapter five, Jesus heals a disabled man. In chapter six, he feeds 5,000 people with just a few loaves and fish. In chapter six, again, he walks on water. And the sixth sign is right here in chapter nine before the last sign of raising Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11. In verses six and seven, the Lord Jesus is proving with his actions, his words, describing himself as the light of the world in verse 5. He is demonstrating by his works, his, his words spoken back in chapter 858. Look at, look at chapter 858, if you could. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I am. I, I am Yahweh. And so the clay that Jesus applies to the man's eyes in verse 6, it should remind you of Genesis 2 when God created Adam out of dirt in Genesis 2. You see, if I, if I created a human being from the dirt of the ground, and if I breathed life into him by my own breath, it would only be consistent that I healed the same man by mixing my saliva with clay from the ground I, I originally made him from. So it's not the clay that healed the man. It was Jesus who healed the man in the same way God created man in Genesis 2 from dirt. See, at this point of the miracle, uh, the, the point of the miracle is this. If Jesus can give you physical sight, he can also give you spiritual vision. If he can give your eyes the ability to see the setting of the sun, he can also give your heart the ability to see the glory of the, the, glory of the risen Son of God. This is the point of the miracle in chapter 9. In verses 8 through 12, 
now the, some of the blind man's neighbors, they recognize the man who now sees. They recognize this is the same neighbor who was blind from birth. And what happens is confusion. This confusion, there, there, verse 8, Therefore the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Is this not the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, This is he. Still others were saying, No, but, but he is like him. He looks like the same guy, but he can't be the same guy because no one born blind ever sees again. And there's, the, there's quite the chaos until the man says over and over, I am the one. I am the one. And he answers, and then they ask him, they ask him in verse 10, how were your eyes open? And in verse 11 he says, the man who is called Jesus, he's the one who gave me my vision. And they said to him, that, hey, where is he, verse 12? And the, the man responds in verse 12 with, I don't know. The, the man says, you know, I can see everything right now with my physical eyes, but I still haven't seen Jesus yet. I, I know I can see everything around me, uh, uh, but, but I, I, I don't know who Jesus is. I don't know this Jesus very well. You see, so far in chapter 9, there has been only one kind of blindness that has been cured. We still need a cure, however, for a greater blindness, for a more dangerous blindness, a blindness that keeps you from seeing Christ. And so we were introduced to a physically blind man in verses 1 through 12. Now we're introduced to spiritually blind men in verses 13 to 34. Who are they? Look at verse 13. They brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. Who are these, who are these spiritually blind men? The Pharisees. Why is Jesus the only person who can cure your blindness? Uh, reason number one, Jesus is the only one who can cure your blindness because he is your creator. He has the power that God had when he created the universe in Genesis 1. And reason number two, he is the only one who can cure you of your blindness because he is your Savior, verses 13 to 34. In verses 1 through 12, the blind man, he learned one thing about Jesus. He learned that Jesus possessed omnipotent power within himself. Jesus didn't call out to God for this power. Think about it. Jesus healed the blind man born from birth by spitting on the ground and rubbing the clay on the guy's eyes. You see, my... My saliva, it doesn't do very much. You know, I might win a spitting contest with my five-year-old. That's all my saliva does. But Jesus' Jesus's saliva gives blind men sight. I mean, the blind man experienced the power of the Creator. I mean, that power. That is power. When your saliva give people vision. And now in verses 13 and 34, the blind man learns a second quality about Christ, and it's this. Jesus is a sinless Savior. Jesus is sinless. 
You see, the conversation in verses 13 through 34, this conversation prompts the blind man to think about whether or not Jesus was a sinner. I mean, he already knows that the Lord is powerful, but is he also sinless? This is the question. And if he has creation power, and if he's also sinless, then what does that make Jesus by the time we get to the end of chapter 9? And we're going to find out. There are three main sections in verses 13 through 34. And in the first of these three sections, verses 13 through 17, this, these verses highlight the Pharisees' default position about the Lord. To them, Jesus was a sinner. There was no way that he could do these powerful miracles. And even if he did these miracles, the miracles had nothing to do with him being the Messiah and the Son of God. And so the former blind men's neighbors first introduced to us in verses 1 through 12, they bring the man to the Pharisees in verse 13. And in verse 14, we learn one of the reasons why the Pharisees were so adamant that Jesus was a sinner. Look at verse 14. Now it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. The Sabbath was the seventh day of the week when God in Genesis 2 rested from all that he had made in creation in Genesis 1. And Israel was commanded to keep the Sabbath to testify to the world that Sabbath rests in a future garden in a world filled with God's glory was still a future reality. The Sabbath was God's sign to the entire planet that his plan was going to end in a restored Eden, a garden that would cover the entire earth. His glory would fill the earth. And therefore, Israel was commanded to rest on the seventh day as a witness of God's plan for the future. And then this argument erupts among the Pharisees in verse 16. 
saying, this man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a sinful man do such signs? And there was a division among them. The majority of the Pharisees argued that Jesus could not be the Son of God. He was not from God. He was not from heaven because he obviously doesn't keep the Sabbath. That makes him a sinner. The minority of the Pharisees, on the other hand, they couldn't deny the validity of Jesus' sign. So there was this division among them. Because the miracles, they were powerful on one hand, and on the other hand, the, the miracles were, were full of goodness and mercy on, on people because Jesus took more and healed the sick. He healed the outcast. How can a sinful man do these sorts of things? How can, how can Jesus be a sinner if the miracles were so full of divine power and infinite mercy and compassion and love? And these so-called Sabbath violations, it doesn't seem like legitimate evidence that Jesus is sinner, somehow sinful. So the majority presumably did the argument in verse 17. And now they call the they call the they call the blind man in verse 17 to ask him. You see the division in verse 16 among the Pharisees, it reflected their the confusion, their willful blindness to Jesus resulted in. Now the, 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 the Pharisees are so befuddled, they're so shaken up, they ask this blind man better his opinion of desperation. So you compare the confusion of the Pharisees in verse 16 and compare that with the certainty of the blind man's answer in verse 17. Verse 17, he said to the blind man again, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes Obviously, 
not that doesn't hear the prayers of the sinful man. Does it work miraculous good and mercy and grace to somebody who came into the past? That cannot be. This in verse 32. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. Isaiah, this healing, this, this power to heal blindness is a unique miracle reserved only for the Messiah. The ability to heal somebody's vision is, is, is the Messiah's calling card. And Luke 4, when Jesus speaks Isaiah 61, and then when he applies that passage to himself, this is what Jesus read. This is what Luke says in chapter 4, 17. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, he has sent me to proclaim release of the captives and recovery of the blind. That's me. Isaiah, physical blindness and spiritual blindness go hand in hand. The reason blindness is reserved as a physical miracle for the Understatement stated negatively says this man would not come down to you. 
positively to me. Jesus is obviously from God because he can do everything God does and he can do everything God does. Oh. 
Lord, I believe.
Thank you. 